welcome to Table Talk, the podcast where we connect current culture with Christianity. Now, I don't often say this, but I have to say we have got some pretty good feedback from our first episode in our series on Afghanistan with Matt Stott. So if you haven't heard it yet, then definitely go back and check that episode out. Because this week, we're actually we're turning it up a notch. We've got a professor on for you. Yeah, we are into the big leagues this week. We are joined by Dr. Len Bartlotti. He lived and worked in Pakistan and Afghanistan for 35 years, including during the Soviet invasion, which he has some pretty interesting stories about. He is a professor of intercultural studies and has served on the board of the largest Christian NGO in Afghanistan. So with Len, we, we take a deeper dive into the history and culture of Afghanistan, and then we get some of his first-hand insight into his experiences of living among people there. So we really hope you enjoy the episode, and as always, do check us out on our Facebook page, link in the show notes below, get involved there, and please, if you do like the podcast, then share it with a friend. Hope you enjoy the episode. Len, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be with you. Len, we normally start with just some quick, quick introductions. So um, would you mind just giving us a bit, of, uh, a bit of background on yourself and tell us a bit about you? Well, uh, my wife and I and our three children spent uh, some 14 years on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. Uh, so um, those were the years when there were millions of Afghan refugees around. So they became our friends. Tremendous people. And uh, after we uh, left uh, residency there, um, I was based in Oxford and would go in and out of Afghanistan quite often to train workers, uh, to do coaching, uh, to serve as a consultant. I was on the board of um, the largest of the Christian uh, NGOs, the faith-based NGOs in Afghanistan. Over these years, I continued to uh, to consult and train workers in the language and the culture. That was also um, where I did my PhD research on Pashtun culture and their oral literature. So I grew to love these people. Fantastic. Would you describe yourself mainly then as a coach to NGO workers and, and aid workers? Would that be the, your main? I know you're probably, you sound like you're multifaceted, but would that be yeah, your main? I, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I, I do a lot of things. Um, and I enjoy them all. I love working yeah. with people. I love working cross-culturally. I love yeah. working, uh, those uh, workers who to be more effective in their living and working. Some people wonder, how could you live and work there? And it's just like, well, this was one of the greatest privileges of my life. And, you know, in any culture, anywhere in the world, it's, it's a bit like lilies on a lily pond. Um, the lilies are beautiful. Uh, and that's the, the beautiful aspects of culture. That's the the food, uh, the dress, the music, the poetry, it's, it's, it's experiences of hospitality and, and so on. That's the lilies. And then you've got the pond water. It's mm. mucky. It's smelly. And that's the way cultures are. And, and um, I think we need to come to a place where we're realistic about ourselves about our own culture and other cultures. There's mm. the ability to appreciate the beauty, what I believe is a, is a God-given beauty to cultures, but also to be very realistic about the mucky, smelly, slimy pond water uh, that darkens mm. uh, the human heart and every structure and, and relationship in a society. Mm. Yeah. And, and Len, I would, I would love to just 
explore that a little bit because I, as a as someone sitting in the UK watching the news recently and and you know the horrendous really upsetting news that's coming out of Afghanistan right now it, it's clearly upsetting and it's it's just kind of 24 hours a day at the moment but i think i i lack the sort of cultural understanding to really parse that properly and to kind of process it more deeply and i suppose you know to your analogy of the lily pond i guess to maybe like explore that we're missing the lilies <laughs> yes exactly we're missing the lilies <laughs> i don't understand the pond at this point so <laughs> len it would be amazing if we could just maybe just to start with on on the history could you maybe unpack that a little bit a little bit more in terms of maybe what has led us to this point well, it, it is um, fascinating and complex. Uh, Afghanistan is a, is a multi-ethnic society. I mean, some 70 languages spoken there. Um, so peace and unity are tenuous at best. Just looking at the last 50 years, you know, the people of Afghanistan are suffering now. Anyone with a heart can, can feel for their plight. And in the media, which is accentuated all of this. It's, I would call it a apocalyptic catastrophizing. But let's put it in perspective. Um, the people in Afghanistan are suffering, but it's not new. They've been suffering. Over the past 50 years, you had uh, from 1973, the, the king was overthrown, a communist government was installed, a coup, um, the Mujahideen started, the freedom fighters were resisting that. Um, then you had the Soviet invasion. I mentioned the, the jihad years, the, the over 5 million Afghan refugees, untold deaths, uh, internally displaced people, refugee camps, civil war, warlords, lawlessness. And in the midst of that chaos, um, the Taliban began to emerge as a kind of a law and order campaign in the name of Islam. And uh, they were able to, uh, to wield influence and negotiate their way to power, um, it's, you know, until we saw them conniving with Al-Qaeda and um, what happened after that. So this, the takeover by the Taliban currently is traumatic. There's no doubt about it. But it is part of what I would call a long trail of tears. And the troops may have left, but um, the Taliban still have to figure out a way to govern. Um, it's not easy for religious leaders to learn how to run a country in a modern economy. With all due respect, they've kind of screwed it up and people are dismayed, disappointed, disillusioned. They've seen the dark side of religious rule. This the Islamist vision that the Taliban have, it's one thing, a government controlled by clerics. Um, good luck with that. Um, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, for them to pull off um, a good economy, development, improvements in the living standards for the people and so on with, with that kind of vision. They will have to accommodate in some way. And Len, you mentioned that different people groups, the emergence of the Taliban um, through, through that period. I suppose, could you perhaps explain a little bit of, of that picture? You know, where, maybe where the Taliban emerged from, what proportion of, of the Afghan people do they claim to represent, perhaps? Are they a minority group? Uh, just to understand that a little bit better. Talib is the, the word for student, Taliban, the plural. Uh, these are students, uh, religious students. They're part of the, 
revival movements um, that have emerged out of Islam, where the goal is to return to the golden age of Islam. How do we how do we explain the the lack of progress in Islamic countries? Uh, well, their solution was we need to get back to true Islam. We need to cut away the accretions of things that have been added on that that are not part of pure Islam or that don't represent the golden age of, of Islam. It's back to the book. Um, it's back to the laws. If we would only live according to true Islam, our country would, would progress. I remember riding in Kabul, uh, riding these in taxi cabs, sometimes just to start a conversation. I would ask the taxi, taxi driver, so um, tell me, uh, brother, uh, what do you think it will take uh, to move Afghanistan forward? What will it take to develop Afghanistan? Nice open-ended and, question. Oh, yeah. And then I'd let him rant for a little while. Uh, I mean, I knew that there were certain options. Uh, one, he might rant for a while on if we could just get rid of the foreigners, everything would be good. Okay. Or he might say, um, if we could just have education, more education. That's why you people... Have, have developed so far. Our people are like donkeys. They're not educated. If we had more schools, we were educating, we would do much better. Or they might say, if we could just change government, these people are corrupt. Or they might say, if we could just have true Islam, um, get back to Islamic law, that would make a difference. I would listen carefully. And then I would say, so um, tell me, um, is there any model that you have for this true Islam, any place where it is working? I said, uh, how about um, Saudi Arabia? He said, no, 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 no. Those Arabs, they're, they're corrupt and, you know, they drink whiskey on the side. And, you know, so they would express their prejudices toward, toward Arabs. I said, uh, what about Iran? Ah, spit. And then he would say, no, they're heretics. And, you know, they, so, you know, I, and I would say, so, uh, is there anywhere on planet Earth where this is actually working to change the lives of people? And they can't quite think of somewhere. And then I would say, well, you know what I think? I think there might be another possibility here. And the problem is, the problem is the human heart, whether in your country or ours. Religion doesn't change the heart. Whether I grow a long beard or clip it short, it doesn't change my heart. They have a proverb, you can't create community by force. And you, you, you can't change the human heart by imposing uh, state control. And this is part of the vision of the Taliban and of similar Islamic movements. The desire to co-opt state power in order to impose their religious vision. Well, think about it. If you have to have the power of the state in order to make people pray, what kind of piety is that? So this is why, whether we're dealing with a Western country or, or a place like Afghanistan, um, something, it has to come from within, doesn't it? That's so helpful, Len, just to orientate ourselves. Can, can I ask just a follow-up question? How would, for example, ISIS then view something like the Taliban? And also, could you explain 
Al-Qaeda within that framework as well, just for our listeners? Because these are just terms that obviously we all hear, but it'd be helpful to have them positioned. The Al-Qaeda and ISIS have a more uh, pan-Islamic agenda. That is, they're not simply concerned about Afghanistan. They want to see their vision of Islam spread radically, broadly, globally, by any means. Um, But it remains to be seen to what degree the Taliban will tolerate the extremes, the excesses, uh, the pan-Islamic agenda, the the violent excesses of uh, of ISIS and al-Qaeda. We need to watch this space. I think we will see the Taliban maybe not publicly, but certainly at local levels, making certain accommodations, depending on the region. If they're in a Pashtun region, they'll behave certain ways. If they're working with other minorities, which they unfortunately despise, no press, like the Hazara um, or Uzbeks or others um, who have traditionally been under the heel of the Pashtuns, we're, we're liable to see more excess, and that will be very sad. So, we, we are rightly concerned about the plight of minorities and the future of minorities, how they will be treated, as well as women. And Len, I mean, you, you mentioned there just having to sort of wait and see how some of that pans out with the Taliban this time around. In the news here, I've been hearing it sort of references the sort of Taliban 2.0, and we'll have to see what that version looks like. I mean... Given your connections to the region, do you have a sense of how that's panning out at the moment, of what what you think that may unfold, Les? Or are we just going to have to give it more time and see see how this version, I suppose, rolls out? Well, it's it's a good question. If we're looking at it through the lens of government, of politics, international relations, we're going to see one thing. Stern faces, sort of brittle in order to prove a point, to assert one's power. That will be at one level. But in anthropology, there's a rule of thumb. Things are not as they seem. And we find that when you look deeper, at a more local level, all Talibs are not the same. Our Taliban are not the same. You have ones that are educated, other ones that are just village dudes, other ones that are, that are tribal chiefs. We will see different kinds of people. And I think we've already had hints of this, and our governments don't know how to make sense of it. We hear reports, for example, that there were Taliban who were escorting Westerners to the airport for evacuation. Now, in, in our press here, that was viewed as like a betrayal. How could you cooperate with these people? Well, to me, it made perfect sense because you find Afghans who will shall we say, do the right thing. They weren't trying to make a point. They weren't trying to prove they were in control. They weren't trying to show their physical prowess. Or, or they, they were just making sure these people got to the airport because an act of violence against them would be shame. So as we go forward, I think we will find that um, the Taliban government, um, they, will, they will allow aid workers back in, and I hope there will be many who respond to help the people of Afghanistan uh, and to offer them hope.
Thanks, Len, so much for sharing that. Really just helpful to get your your insights on that and sort of get behind the veil a little bit of, I suppose, the, the ignorance that, that I certainly have, I think a lot of people have in, in this country and across the West of, of the culture there and, and some of the, the background and the historical context of these, these groups. So thank you so much for giving us a bit of insight there. Um, one, one question that we often ask to people, and I'm, I'm particularly fascinated to hear your thoughts on this, having experienced life in Pakistan and Afghanistan, as a Christian and having lived and worked amongst Muslims and amongst different people groups there, what has that experience done to one reinforce your faith? And have there been moments during that time that have tested it? I guess one of the things that um, that motivates me is what I believe God is like from what I read in the Bible. Um, it's one of the things that changed my life when I read that God is personal, that he loves people, um, that he loves people from every tribe, every nation, every language group. He doesn't favor one over another. Jesus is not a pale-faced American. He's not a Brit. He's, he's the man for all peoples. And that view that, that God, he's in control of history, now, that history is going somewhere that life has purpose, that God has a purpose for each one of us that's created in his image, that we're, that we're loved uh, and we're invited into relationship with God. That was a transforming message for me. That took me far beyond, you know, sort of religious stuff. And so as I read the New Testament for myself, you know, most, most of our Muslim friends have not read the Bible on the run. Uh, when I began to read that for myself, I saw a God who who was personal, that I could have a relationship with. That was transforming for me. And I've shared that with hundreds of thousands of Muslims. You can know God. It's so amazing to me. You can know God. I remember telling God years ago, when I first, when I first had this experience, I said, God, if you're real, I want to know you. If I can know you, I'll follow you for the rest of my life. If I can know you, but I don't want to play religion. I would sit with refugees in their mud and straw homes in the camps. I mean, what, what could I say to them, really? Do we offer, we offer humanitarian aid, of course. Mm. All of those compassion-type works were going on. But, but what they really needed was, was a message of hope, that there was a God who loved them. And when I read the Bible, to read that Jesus, he was familiar with human suffering. He, he died on a cross. He understands our tears. He understands our pain. To have a God who is with you in the midst of your tears is an amazing, amazing thing. So it, it strengthened my faith in a God who loves, who cares, who is present, uh, not far off, but a God who comes near to us. Uh, in, in Islamic uh, poetry, theology, we're, we're, the, we're the lover pursuing the beloved who is God. The Bible is very different. It flips that around. God's the lover who's pursuing us because he wants relationship. Now, there is suffering, and that was the hard part. We buried friends, people who were martyred for their faith. But to see that happen, we were seeing that dark side of the human heart that I talked about earlier, the lily in the lily pond. And um, I know that's true, partly because I look at the reality of the world around me. There's the darkness there. And the other, I know my own heart. Every human heart is dark places. And that's what gives me the hope 
that the heart can be changed. When I read the Bible, the Bible's realistic about human sinfulness. There's a bentness to human nature, but also the Bible offers us hope of change. Jesus came in order to, to offer us forgiveness, to offer us hope, the hope of a different kind of future. And that's a message that I've shared with thousands of, of Afghans over bottomless cups of chai or after meals. Or... Do you know, Len, one thing that I found so fascinating of doing these episodes and, and what I've really been struck by is that I think part of what I've been absorbing here of listening to the news and, and watching the, the media and, and it all playing out there is almost this sense of a kind of Western Messiah complex, you know, of how do we fix this? How do we, how do we help these poor people? And what I've really, really enjoyed about these episodes is, is just listening to these stories of, of the culture there, of the richness of that culture and that history and, and the wisdom, deep wisdom that these, these people have. I think that's one of my kind of main takeaways from having done these episodes is just that I, how important it is to look beneath the surface of what we're seeing here, what we're being told about people, and try to see them as humans and understand their history and their culture and, and listen to what they have to say. Thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and sharing all these amazing stories. Thank you. It's been a privilege to be with you. Thanks for listening to Table Talk, the podcast. We hope you found that uh, enjoyable, thought-provoking, interesting. If you did or if you didn't, uh, please leave us your feedback at our Facebook page, Table Talk Podcast. We'd love you to get involved. Tell us what you think we should be covering on one of our next shows and uh, hit us up there. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.